Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Punching Out. My name is Cadejo Jones, and as always, you can call me Cadejo. And this week, I am joined by Ryan. Hello. And Rich. Hey there. So it's the end of the year, obviously. And one of the things uh, I personally wanted to do for the whole show is look at 2017 and what it meant for labor. But as we were working to put this together, we realized that it's not just enough to talk about where we are right now with labor if we don't talk about the history of labor, which is something that has come up now and again in different episodes. It's come up in episodes I've been on. I know Karen during the healthcare talked about the history of healthcare and work. But so long as we're going to be looking back and reflecting on the year, we might as well reflect on the history of labor because the events that happened in the past lead us to where we are today. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Um, I know there's a several events that I've learned about in school and other things that matter a lot to me, and I'm sure you guys have some as well. Um, I think labor history is important because as we talk about on this show, the problems workers face, one thing you find you know, reading the history or looking back into the past is that the problems we face today are not that different from the problems faced back then. Um, it's a constant struggle. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a labor historian. That's how I identify my work. Um, what always has fascinated me is uh, the different ways workers organize themselves, whether inside unions or outside unions. Um, you know, that's been always the, the, the main focal point of my research and my work. Um, and these workers in the past uh, not only laid the groundwork for uh, the labor movement today or work culture today, but also left behind, in my opinion, guideposts for uh, the potential future for labor and left politics in the United States. I think what I'd say is that, I mean... While the people and the technology may have changed, the basic fundamental forces of our economy have largely stayed the same. Owners of businesses want to extract as much work as they can for as little money as they can, while workers are just the opposite. They want to get as much of their labor as they possibly can, the fruit of their labor, while putting in as little as possible, ideally. Yeah, I think you can look at it. Another way to look at it, too, going off of that idea is the workers, you know, us versus them, the bosses, is to look at it like it's on a seesaw almost <laughs> or on a sliding scale. Like a bunch of the major events in history, especially the ones that mattered to me, have either tipped, you know, towards like being in favor of the workers or being in favor of em employers. And that goes even into laws that have been passed as well. I would say in this country, you've seen a lot more tipping in one direction than the other. Oh, but, yeah, that's, um, that's definitely true. I won't disagree with that. Like, there's definitely weights on one side of the scale. But we have had movements, you know, particularly the New Deal and uh, after World War II, where union density was strong. Union politics were national news. Uh, strikes, again, national news. There were moments where the labor uh, movement was a vital, necessary force in uh, American everyday life and discourse. And I don't think it's really controversial to say that right now it's not. Uh, it's oh, been no. 
pretty heavily rolled back. Uh, sometimes, you know, through its own fault, uh, in large part because the overwhelming power of the state and of corporations in this economy have actively worked to undermine union rights in this country. Uh, so part of our goal in this episode is to give kind of a, a background for uh, how that came to be and what the alternatives uh, to that are. What's union density right now? Like 10%, maybe 10% if, of the if country that, if that workers. We're, when we're talking 25% after World War II. So, yeah, you know, it was it's obviously a, it's a severe decline. It, and there's a specific event which I want to talk about later. And let me just start off here in saying that we're not going to cover everything today. You could do a podcast or a radio show alone on the history of labor. But uh, we've worked together, and in some of the events we've picked out specifically to start here are ones that we think are very important or that we know a lot about, or in my case, one of them's a, not only is it a very relevant and important part of labor history, but it's also a personal grudge is <laughs> the reason I'm sharing it. And um, what we hope to do in the future is also have uh, history segments where we can go back and talk about the ones we missed today. It's a, it's a deep, rich history that's undertaught in this country. And we would love to share, you know, some of the, the seminal moments in the history of labor and of American workers and of global workers, in fact, uh, in the, 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 the creation of uh, the working you know, class, the working class and the alternatives for a better future. Yeah, this is not a subject we can cover in half an hour, but, you know, it's something that we'll be coming back to in the future, because, as we said, knowing the past is important. It's a lot of the same conflicts and struggles are being fought today. So if I'm not mistaken, you had one you wanted to lead off with. Yeah. So part of what engages me as a, as someone who works in the labor movement and, you know, as a scholar of labor and American workers is the idea that in the past there are roads not taken. That's a lot of what historians study is possible alternatives, possible, uh, possible ways that things could have gone differently and trying to explain why things went the way they did. Uh, so one of the great moments, uh, or one of the great movements, I should say, in American history that represents a road ultimately blocked off is the industrial workers of the world, the the the, the famous Wobblies. Oh, uh, yeah, everyone everyone loves the Wobs. Um, <laughs> so in nineteen, so the Wobblies they started primarily as a West Coast movement. They were lumberjacks, uh, you know, the hobos riding the rails. They're working mobile jobs, and they carried their red card with them from job to job, and that represented. Uh, working working class solidarity across boundaries across workplaces, um, but arguably the height of the the IWW as a movement was in the 19 teens. Uh, they led the the famous Bread and Roses strike in Massachusetts, uh, very successful uh, mobilization uh, against the, the the textile factories in, in Massachusetts. Uh, and in 1913, they, they attempted to build off that success in uh, a series of strikes in Patterson, New Jersey. The silk fact, the silk factories there, the silk mills, um, were being stretched out. That means the workers were being asked to take on more and more looms in the silk factory. They were being paid the same wages, uh, and they were being threatened uh, with their very jobs if they uh, spoke out or uh, attempted to advocate for fair wages and fair work hours. So the IWW uh, mobilized. Uh, a massive strike. 20,000 workers walked out of Patterson's mills. They organized themselves in democratic committees and determined their demands democratically. Uh, it's worth pointing out the mills were multi-ethnic, uh, Italians, Eastern Europeans, Russian Jews, uh, 
American workers, native-born American workers, all made up the uh, the workforce at Patterson. So uh, these democratic committees were organized by ethnic group, but all directed toward the same goal of winning better wages, winning more control and power over the workplace, uh, and upholding uh, workplace safety. So that democratic moment, that idea that uh, workers should organize themselves democratically and make decisions democratically, I think is a, a road not taken in the labor movement and one that definitely needs to be restored. And then part two of why uh, the Patterson strike uh, really engages me as a subject is uh, the mobilization in New York's left-wing intellectuals to support the Patterson strike. Greenwich Village, uh, Bohemia, uh place of artists and intellectuals, uh, they organized a pageant uh, with the Democratic Committees of the Workers, staged at Madison Square Garden, uh, to bring attention to the strike. Uh, so it's kind of a who's who of, of labor and, intelli- and the intelligentsia was there. Uh, Mabel Dodge organized it. John Sloan, uh, an artist who uh, brought impressionistic techniques to working class subjects, painted the backdrop. As far as I can tell, the backdrop now lost art, which is a tragic loss for um, workers. Um, John Reed, the the journalist who would document the Russian Revolution, was one of the major organizers of it. Uh, Carlo Tresca, the Italian anarchist, was one of the speakers. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, the original rebel girl, was one of the, another one of the speakers. Big Bill Haywood, was kind of the master of ceremonies. Big Bill. The workers, they marched in the streets, they marched into the pageant, and they participated in the pageant. They were the the actors in it. They were the, 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 the active agents of presenting this pageant of their own strike to an audience of 15,000 people. And it was a participatory uh, aesthetic, not just for the workers serving in the pageant, but also for the audience as well. And it represented a kind of a new kind of art, a different way of engaging with art uh, that again, I think you don't really see uh, outside a few rare moments. Uh, you know, workers telling their own stories, inc- encouraging the audience to participate, uh, and uh, being active, actively engaged in how they express their own stories. So, I think that's a, a nice, you know, just brief summary, or maybe not so brief summary of you know a path not taken. Now, when you talk about you know that sort of democratically led you know decision making being a path not taken, you're contrasting that with the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, which is very much a top-down run organization. Is that right? I'd say most most unions within the AFL-CIO structure these days are pretty top-heavy, not, not super responsive to workers. But even at the time. And at the time especially so. The American Federation of Labor oh, um, was a very much a craft union uh, that meant focused on the so-called skilled workers. The silk workers of Patterson were not skilled workers. They were not AFL uh, subjects and that makes a good line between where uh, I really don't like the AFL during that time personally. Uh, the head of it around that time, I don't know if it was Gompers out by that point. Uh, I think it was Gompers. He was around forever. Yeah, Samuel Gompers was head of the AFL, and he was uh, his, <laughs> as racist as they come. I think uh, he went several times under the auspices of saying it's it's for the workers here, and batted for something called the Chinese Exclusion Act which was an effort, which just said you can't, no more Chinese immigrants coming into the U.S. And that's something that I like about the Patterson strike, especially in the way you described yeah. it, is it doesn't, the IWW was very good compared to the other organizations at its time of getting all different races involved. There were a lot of people, like, uh, 
they were never good or bad on it specifically, but the AFL didn't focus on like women's labor. Sure. Where I think the IWW did. They organized uh, racially in the South. Uh, a number of IWW unions, particularly longshoremen's unions, were explicitly biracial, which is very unusual at the time. Um, and they, they focused on building working class solidarity across ethnic lines, which, you know, like Kadeo pointed out, was not something the AFL was interested in doing. And the AFL was much more interested in uh, maintaining boundaries between workers, whether by skill or by ethnicity or uh, by gender. And I think, and race, of course. Looking through history, race and gender are sort of big dividing lines where occasionally working class movements would unite across those lines, but often they were divided because of them. And to to spin off in a little bit of it, like going back even farther than this, I mean, there's a bunch of strikes which we won't get to today in the 1800s, but even going back as far, there was something called Bacon's Rebellion. Back in a, a 16, 17, 1676. Yeah, 1676. <laughs> thank you, Rich. And one of the th- thank you, yeah, thank you. I'm long time ago, anyways. Um, and one of the things that happened in the process of this rebellion happening it was it was a slave rebellion, if I'm not mistaken. But what happened? It was, it was an indentured servants rebellion. Oh, that's what it is. But that's that's the thing. Is what happened is the two converged. Yeah. It's like there was this great deal of solidarity between indentured servants and slaves because indentured servitude is basically slavery with a time limit. And that's what it was. Yeah, it was it was a moment of biracial organization that absolutely terrified Virginia's planters. Uh, and what you see in the aftermath of it, and probably I'm going to do an episode, or me and Kideho can both do an episode about explicitly about Bacon's Rebellion because it's such a rich topic, yeah. is uh, the, how race gets created through work. Uh, that, that's such a rich uh, yeah. mind, mind to probe. But it's a case of where the bosses came down the other way, too. Is largely after that was the, at least in the book, like my history, labor history class, it, it, they sort of point to it as a point where the, the a slaveholding class started to dismantle indentured servitude because they realized in a way that it was a way that black workers and white workers would have solidarity as they're both under these unfair systems. So what largely happens, like starting at that point, it took a while for it to happen, but starting at that point, indentured servitude as an institution starts to get dismantled. We're still living in the world uh, Virginia planters made. That's why we're doing this episode. (laughs) And um, we can talk more about, you know, other events and the effects of decisions like these and paths not taken after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. You'd like to share your stories? You can email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. In this episode, we're talking about American labor history and its, uh, its impact, continuing impact on American life today. Uh, before the break, I was talking about the Patterson Silk Strike. Uh, unfortunately, you know, despite the promise of the IWW, uh, they were defeated in Patterson. Uh, the Patterson pageant actually lost money. Um, and then ultimately, in the aftermath of World War I, and particularly the Bolshevik Revolution, the Wobblies, an explicitly anarchist uh, union movement, uh, fell afoul, let's say, of the federal government and were broken up. Their leaders sent into exile. Uh, Big Bill actually dies in Russia. Emma Goldman spends a chunk of time there. I think she returns home before her death. but uh, She doesn't actually end up she, coming back to the States. She lives right, in Toronto for the rest of her life. All right, comes back to North America anyway, never That's to the it. United States again. Um, John Reed also dies in Russia, uh, thanks to the Allied boycott. 
Um, but that democratic promise never went away. You know, the, the idea, the small d democratic promise, the idea of organizing uh, labor uh, in councils, on the work floor, through workers' voices, uh, never goes away. And Cadejo is going to talk about uh, some continuities in the during the New Deal. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is like the 1930s was sort of like one of the points at which labor in this country was at its peak, it's at its best. And part of that... Which is sort of paradoxical given that it's also the Great Depression. Well, I think it's directly related. I think when people are truly forced up against the wall, that's when often when you find moments of solidarity even the strongest. But what also helped was the government for once not coming down as hard. Uh, the truncheon didn't come down. In fact, it came the other way with something called the Wagner Act, which was passed in 1935. Among the other things it did, it set up a lot of protection saying uh, corporations or businesses cannot interfere with your right to have a union. Um, and it set up the National Labor Relations Board, which and, in its original form was a good thing. Just to interject quick, it's worth pointing out that whether or not it was even legal to form a union was pretty unclear in federal law at the time. There was a lot of case uh, case law that was firmly against unionization, firmly against workers' organization. So Wag the Wagner Act represented a real break uh, with the previous tradition of, of labor rights in the United States. Yeah. And for once, you see the government setting up something to protect workers. And for a while, it was a really, really big and useful thing. At some point, it fell apart, but we'll get to that. Um, and FDR, he was a Democratic president, big D, but had come into power on the basis of a lot of working class outrage. And at a time where actual socialist parties had made some headway in the U.S. Yeah. And these parties were able to push a little bit of pressure on FDR from the left because his 32 campaign had not been promising the things that actually came to fruition under his presidency. Yeah, there was another law, I'm not remembering the name of it, of it off the top of my head, that came before the Wagner Act got passed. The problem was it didn't go far enough, it didn't provide the protections it needed, and the boards and processes that it set up were just not efficient at all. And after it collapsed on itself, the Wagner Act came into being. That's a whole the whole fight to get the Wagner Act passed is an episode in itself. But the 1930s being like the rise of labor wasn't just the Wagner Act and, and other stuff like that. It was also because these unions were gaining more and more strength, strikes started to succeed more and more. There was a massive, massive amount of strikes during this time because strikes are a way for workers to take the power from the bosses. And one of the best examples of that happens in Flint, Michigan in 1937. The workers in the uh, GM plants in Flint, Michigan were not getting paid enough. They, they were being required to go in for more and more hours. It was like 60 or 70 hour weeks. At, I can't scale up the pay, but even then it was like cents a, a day or cents a week that they were getting paid. So what happened in what's usually called a wildcat strike is the workers on their own democratically decided to do what's called a sit-down strike. It's well, worth pointing out that the UAW, which was a uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations Union, was planning to organize these plants, um, but found itself kind of being dragged by the nose by the workers who were even marching out ahead of yeah. uh, the CIO in terms of their, their organization plans and the strike plans. So what a sit-down strike is and what these, the workers decided to do is you just you sit down on the factory floor. There's some great pictures out there, if you go out and look at it, of them just like sitting around reading newspapers in the beds of the trucks. And one of the reasons this um, strike is so amazing is because it was so nonviolent. A lot of strikes up to this point had had a history of violence, especially when you look in the late 
1880s and 1890s, there was a lot of violence going on. And but there was a potential for violence here. I mean, yeah, but we'll get to that. So one of the what they did was they just sat down. They didn't destroy any equipment. They didn't, uh, you know, block really like destroy things to do it. All they did was just sit down at the machines and say, "No, we're not going to work." And it, the way they sustained this was wives, sisters, family would bring food pass it through the windows, chase off the cops when need be. The closest it came to violence is uh, at some point the cops were going to try, or militia, one of the two, the line gets really fuzzy in, this, in most of these cases, tried to, and uh, basically the workers just kind of like threw hinges and other small parts out the window to run them off. But and, one of th- Sorry, GM had its own private police force as well. That was another motivator for the strike was yeah. – uh, you know, the workplace, you know, it wasn't just controlled by the company. It was controlled by armed goons that the company employed. And, and one of the tactics is this was Flint, Michigan in January and December. You know, they tried to, you know, shut off the heat. And they yeah. tried to freeze these workers out. And it didn't work. And one of my favorite parts about the strike, too, is they totally duped them. So at some point, the it was in one or two of the plants. And... um they like the spri- strike was starting to spread as well, so they set up this massive like dupe and saying, "Okay, we're going for this place," and GM was ready for them. They had the the cops in place. All of this, someone had, like there was some bug or mole on the inside feeding them, and then they just went to a completely different plant. Instead of the complex they were going to shut down, they shut down plant number four, and that was one of the like decisive moves is because suddenly they had another plant that was not doing anything that they weren't expecting. They caught them completely with their pants down. And in one of the, again, rare cases, uh, GM appealed to uh, Roosevelt to bring in troops to settle the strike. And Roosevelt's like, no, you're on your own for this one. There's a lot of times in history where that wasn't the case, but this this time it worked out peacefully. Yeah, when Cadejo talks about violence in these strikes, oftentimes what you see happen is either private detectives, the Pinkertons, the notorious uh, Pinkertons of the 19th century, yeah. or the paid goons that Ford, GM, all the UAW, or you know, state militia, state army, are the ones breaking up these, these picket lines, breaking up these strikes. That's another reason why the sit-down strike was so effective, is there was no picket line to attack. If they're going to attack the workers, they would have to do it on the shop floor itself, and that was something GM was trying to avoid. And oh. just on this note of violence, um, you know, only a few years earlier, you know, you had, you know, hungry Ford workers. It was the middle of the Great Depression who um, launched a hunger strike in what was called the Ford Massacre, you know, also in Michigan, you know. So the threat of violence was very much real and recent at this time. Right, yeah. The, these marching workers, unemployed Ford workers, uh, were marching to uh, the plant in Dearborn, and they were violently attacked by Ford's goons. Uh, many of them were severely injured in the attack. So there's this, this recent memory of, of open violence that these corporations are waging against uh, workers trying to unionize, workers trying to fight for their rights. Uh, that's a necessary part of the context, not just of the sit-down strike, but also of the labor movement's history in general. Yeah, And that's one of the other things of why a sit-down strike is so effective and why what I'll explain happened not two years later. You can't, you can't uh, bring in scabs. You can't strike break. You can't go around a sit-down strike. There's, they're just sitting on the floor. They're occupying the space physically. So either you have to do the work somewhere else or you're just out of luck until you see demands or violence happens. There's, it's not like when you have a picket line, you can find ways or 
by violence break the line and get scabs through or strike breakers through or, you know, find ways around it. There's no way to do that with a sit-down strike. And eventually that leads to uh, a decision. In 1939, a decision comes down from the Supreme Court in the National Labor Relations Board versus Fansteel Metallurgical Corporation, in which uh, by a pretty hefty margin, I don't think it's a... Um, like I don't think it's like eight to one, but it's definitely a past just a five four decision. Uh, the Supreme Court rules that workers involved in another sit down strike don't get back uh, back pay, don't get reinstated. Effectively, the decision sets the precedent for sit down strikes to be illegal, and this leads into probably one of the worst laws ever passed for labor, the Taft Hartley Act in 1947. Well, so we should mention as well that the sit down strikes worked. Uh, UAW yes. earned its recognition, became one of the major uh, major unions within the CIO, one of the major unions uh, through the rest of the 20th century, still a prominent force in American labor and labor politics. That's part of the reason why we see these these rollbacks is just how successful, like Kadeho was saying, the sit-down strikes were and the UAW organizing campaigns and the big auto industries were in this period. Even during the buildup and during World War II, you see instances where the UAW is still continuing to have these wildcat strikes, to have these sit-down strikes that slow down the process, even as the nation is pushing and union leadership is saying, okay, we all need to get together. We need to build these tanks. We need to build these planes. Yeah. There is, um, in the book, one of the books I refer to often is, it was the textbook for my labor history class and also just a good read. It's a book called From the Folks Who Brought You the Weekend um, by... Uh, Priscilla Marullo and A.B. Chitty. Um, they t there's a chapter in itself just on what was happening with labor during and right before World War II. Um, but <laughs> Taft-Hartley. Taft-Hartley. Oh, I, I, it just makes me so angry. And it's also Still such a Still the blow. law of the land. Yeah. And that's the biggest problem yeah. is it's never been overruled. Yeah. So in 1947, the pressure of strikes, especially in, right after the war ended... Um, okay, let me back up. During the war, a bunch of unions had uh, basically a no-strike pledge as this patriotic <laughs> thing saying, we won't stop the work because we don't want to hurt the war effort. There was a lot of, there was quite a few wildcat strikes during that time. So a wildcat strike, I'm sure we've used it before, I'm not sure if we defined it, is when a strike happens without... Uh, union leadership without approval. Un yeah, without union leadership approval. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Um, but... That no-strike pledge ended, obviously, when the war ended. So 1945 and 1946, there were just thousands upon thousands of strikes. All of the organizing that had been happening beforehand, especially in the 30s, just came back in full force because people knew it worked, because they, the changes happened that needed to happen. And demobilized soldiers were returning home, looking forward to getting their old jobs back, and looking forward to, after the victory over the Nazis, uh, a better life. Uh, in the United States for themselves. And so these wildcat strikes are part of this moment of uh, of promise, this part of this moment of uh, optimism for the future of workers in the United States. Yeah, we went out and got shot at for you. You <clears throat> better pay us what we deserve. But um, big business, as always, is just constantly pushing to get rid of unions because it's about the bottom line. It's not about the people doing the work for them. And in 1947, along with uh, a guy... Something ha uh, Taft and Hartley, obviously, were the people named. I forget the actual name of the bill itself, but it became known as the Tat Har Taft Hartley Act. Uh, gets passed in 1947 and completely changes the the playing field. 
So the big thing Taft-Hartley does is rolls back uh, available tactics for unions. Um, so the success, a lot of the successful tactics uh, of the 1930s, for instance, were the sit-down strike, uh, but also things like secondary boycotts. Uh, so what that means is if you're you're uh, you're trying to organize a Ford plant, you would stage a picket line outside a Ford Motor dealership, the place where most people engage with uh, Ford on a day-to-day basis, since factories. You know, particularly the massive auto factories tended to be on the outskirts of the cities. This is a way of bringing attention to, uh, bringing attention to the strike and to the labor unrest. Those now are illegal. Um, also, solidarity strikes where another yeah. union in another industry might go on strike in support of the yeah, original so, strikers. So a general strike, which was you know another big uh, tactic, uh, you know, bring all the all the locals, all the all the industries together in one sort of big strike against the system as a whole are now uh, not just frowned upon, but actually illegal. Yeah, and uh, two, it shifted entirely the purpose of the National Labor Relations Board in a way that's not been fixed to the point now where we could talk about in part two of this episode when we talk about the current problems why card checks are a better uh, way to unionize than the National Labor Relations Board elections. Um, so um, one of the big things that Taft-Hartley also did was um, got rid of the idea of a closed shop. So a closed shop is, a, is an idea that in order – you can, it can mean two things. I mean either workers have to come through a union hiring hall. You often see that on waterfronts for uh, longshoremen. Or, or that it, when workers are hired, they're automatically uh, part of the union. Uh, Taft-Hartley bans that. Uh, limits uh, unions' re- uh, ability to regulate uh, the size of the workforce, regulate control of the, the shop floor, uh, and to control who's getting hired. Um, and that's important because what happens in the wake of Taft-Hartley is the introduction, starting in the American South and then creeping north and west of what are called right-to-work laws. So despite the, the lack of closed shops, uh, generally under the law, unions can still require uh, – Either dues uh, for members of uh, of the shop, whether or not they belong to the union or not, or service fees, you know, for coverage and grievances, or uh, you know, various protections provided by the union. In right to work states, those don't exist. Uh, states mandate that unions have to provide the same services and the same uh, protections to all workers in the workforce, but workers don't have to belong to the union in turn. So workers don't have to pay dues, they don't have to pay service fees, uh, but if they have a grievance. Union stewards are by law mandated to represent them nonetheless. So so those people end up being called free riders. And this is a problem, especially because employers have especially argued in the wake of Taft-Hartley and this stuff, that that's the better way to do things. Like arguing that if you don't have these right-to-work laws, the unions are stealing from you, which is not the case. Like I understand people's hesitancy of saying, oh, well, I have to pay this no matter what. But it's like it's like having to pay taxes to get your road paved. Like a union cannot defend you if it doesn't have the resources to do so. You are the union. If you're in a union, you know it's not something outside of you. Ideally, it's something that you yourself make and support. Dues are an essential part of that process. You know they can't fight legal battles. They can't fight battles against the bosses unless they have the money uh, and the backing to do so. And right to work is a direct attack against uh, the very basis of union power. And I think, you know, being a direct attack is sort of why you see when Republicans take power in southern states or elsewhere is one of the first things they will look to do is enact right-to-work laws. Yeah. They seek to 
reduce unions of their powers because Republicans ultimately are a party that serves corporate interests, serves the interests of business owners as opposed to the workers who make the business. In preview to the next episode, we're about to see a national right-to-work decision from Supreme Court, so that's something we'll be talking about for the the 2017 review episode. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, to wrap up Taft Hartley before we move on to other things. One of the worst parts of Taft Hartley, specifically for an organization like the CIO, was explicitly in Taft Hartley. This was the beginning of the second Red Scare, especially the the post World War II Red Scare, which massive, massive damage all across the board to all sorts of people. But specifically in the language of Taft Hartley, unions and major organizations of that kind had to sign anti-communist affidavits. And what this led to, especially in the case of the CIO, was a purge of anyone who had even the most remote connection with uh, communist parties at home or abroad. And communists and the rank-and-file workers of unions were often the ones who had the most radical politics and the most radical pushes within their unions. They were the ones who would not... Oftentimes, union leadership was significantly more conservative and more restrained than their rank and file. Yeah, like in the case of the AFL. The other thing is uh, something that that book I mentioned for before from the folks who brought you the weekend talks about is that a lot of them too had a lot of experience and a lot knew how to organize very very well, and that was something that you know that contributes to the strength of union your ability to organize. Like since it's at the primary thought of a lot of communist thinking, especially at that time. They had the skills to go out there. They knew how to organize. And top down, there was this massive purge, especially in the CIO, of anybody who had the most remote thing to do. So in effect, what Taft-Hartley does is it defangs unions. It strips them of not only their power and ability, but also in many respects their class politics, their willingness to point out an enemy and – fight that enemy. This is ultimately the damage to the CIO it never recovers from. If we look at the history, like if you've heard the name AFL now, you usually don't hear the name AFL-CIO separately. And that's in part, I think it's fair to say that it's almost directly because of Taft-Hartley. The loss of communist organizers and the loss of a lot of people who are even just tangentially related who got purged in this, the CIO never recovers from this, this problem. Um, and what happens in 1955 is the AFL and CIO reunite again, and the CIO takes a smaller role. The more radical things that happened with the CIO and why the CIO separated from the AFL to begin with all get swept under the rug. And there aren't a lot of changes in the way the AFL-CIO operates until in the me- at least the mid-90s. And that's something we can get into more after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester, 104.3 FM. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. Um, Where we left off before that break was sort of post-World War II and the ways in which unions were shifting during this time. And the 30 years after World War II from 1945 to about 1975 are often thought of as sort of a a glory age, a golden age in American society for the middle class. It was not extended to the whole of the working class. Obviously, you had 
black people and women and a number of other minority groups facing real problems during this era, but middle class class wages were rising, families were prosperous in many ways, and in the 70s and as the late 70s come around, there's a economic downturn that sparks from globalization and the outsourcing of manufacturing to other countries, and it results in Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, and one of his first actions was to sort of exterminate a strike by air traffic controllers. Yeah. So another part of that whole rise from the the 70s onwards is the real growth of the service industry and services as uh, production both shifts overseas and the needs, things and needs change. Automation destroys all sorts of jobs, but, you know, provides this big consumer culture. So there's a shift from production to service and you... Unions like the AFL-CIO especially lagged behind in starting to try to unionize service workers. This was a growing problem. Numbers were starting to turn down. And then, as you said, one of the first things Reagan does in office is an act so destructive that it resonates so far outside of labor. Um, There's uh, an organization in in Rochester that's got a lot of history, a 52-year history. It started in 1965 called Metro Justice. And I've been helping them sort through their archives to, um, well, because there's like 50 years of, 50, 60 years of history there in filing cabinets. And one of the other things I've been doing is talking to older members to try to get their stories before they pass. And in every one of these activists' lives, even ones who are outside of labor, they talk about this event because it was just so destructive. So in 1981, there's this union called PATCO, which... Uh, Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization. Yeah. Um, one of the few unions, if I'm not mistaken, actually to back Reagan. So they go on strike for better conditions because being in air traffic control is one of those ones you have to be there. It's a very stressful job. It's a very uh, taxing emotionally and physical job. Um, conditions were terrible, <laughs> you know, as they t- tend to be in jobs like that when you don't have, you haven't gone on strike yet. So uh, somewhere around, I believe, 13,000 workers walk out. It's a massive strike, and it shuts down airlines because you can't have people taking off from airports, especially busy ones, without the air traffic control. Uh, Reagan, in just a stroke of what I can only call malignance, decides that the way he's going to end the strike and force things to move forward is to fire every last one of them. And he does so under the Taft, the provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act. Many of them end up effectively blacklisted from working in other air traffic control jobs that aren't related to that union until some of those don't get uh, overturned until Clinton. What this sets off as well is this massive, massive push on the side of business. It just in, it emboldens them. <laughs> They go after unions in a way and after work organizing in a way they hadn't – they'd tried before, but they'd never done with such vigor and such – oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like acidity, such viciousness. They'd been laying the groundwork for these kinds of uh, eliminationist campaigns against unions for most of the past 10, 20 years. Uh, opposition to union organization had been a major component of Republican Party ideology. Uh 
you know, going back to the 19th century, they really never accepted the New Deal. They really never accepted, uh, you know, the post-war settlement, uh, the so-called Treaty of Detroit. You know, the the idea of corporate union cooperation uh, as the basis of the American economy never fully embedded itself within the Republican Party. So you see, uh, you see planning, you see the right to work statutes creep up across the South and spread. I think malignancy is the right word there. It's kind of a cancer spreading into the labor movement. And then, you know, following this economic downturn, following, uh, you know, the, the Nixon regime, following uh, Jimmy Carter's hardly great for workers presidency, <laughs> and then coming to Reagan, PACO really kind of ties off uh, this moment of promise and optimism in American life where it seemed like uh, prosperity guaranteed by union membership uh, was the norm. And it could be shared by everybody. Right. A way to think about it is what, in some ways, labor and the big unions were not aware is that the bosses were sitting there just piling, kindling in circles around them again and again and again and just pouring gasoline on the ba- uh, on, on the base. And then Reagan comes by and accident- accidentally, I'm using finger quotes because I always use finger quotes on the radio, this is a theme now, <laughs> is just accidentally flicks a match into the whole thing. But it wasn't an accident. It was not at all. And it too, this is something that goes spreads out into not just talking about labor, but in like organizing on the left. So many activists and other people were heard about this because it's one thing to know that the government is against you. It's another thing to go in and watch someone next to you just get it like, you know, it's like a Lord of the Rings movie. The boulder comes out of nowhere and just smashes the guy next to you. And there's like, it demoralized everyone in a way. I don't think that recovered truly until ACT UP in the 1980s and 1990s got some activists motivated and other events that came later, particularly a strike I'd like to talk about. There, there was also a global resonance as well. Because the 1980s are, uh, you know, I'm thinking of England or the United Kingdom. Thatcher's prime minister, uh, arguably even more reactionary than, uh, than Reagan. Uh, in the aftermath of PACO, certainly not a direct line, but certainly in the atmosphere of conservative reaction against labor, Thatcher breaks the miners' union. She puts uh, puts the, the miners out of work. Uh, these are public mines, you know, unlike in the United States. Uh, so they're public workers. Thatcher puts them out of work, fires them, uh, breaks their strike, lasts more than a year, uh, ultimately defeats them and eliminates them to the same extent that PACO was destroyed in the United States. So uh, the, it's a labor... Movement. It's a moment where labor is is on its heel globally after the 1980s. Reagan and Thatcher are often credited credited with ushering in this era of neoliberalism, which is a term that we've used several times on this show. But I don't know if we've really explained what that means. You know, neoliberalism refers to you know this ideology where deregulation, destruction of unions, where businesses are given power over their workers and the public sphere along with unions and worker power are all sort of eradicated and hollowed out. The simplest way to put it is it's this belief in the free market. And I don't know about you, but in the course of my lifetime, in the 26 years I've been alive, free market has been sort of the dominant ideology. And what happened a year or two before I graduated? The, The Great Recession, basically the Great Depression of our era. It's this massive explosion inward of the markets, and we didn't really fix any of the problems. Any of the problems that existed that caused the Great Recession are still here. It's worth pointing out, too, that 
free association under the free market doesn't apply to unions. You as an individual uh, can't legitimately choose to join a union. You can only legitimately choose to uh, start a business. And that's what's so limiting about uh, start a business or accept a wage work. You know, those are your, the false choice under neoliberalism. Yeah. Many of the problems we face today are the result of 40 years of this ideology really being in the driver's seat of the world's largest countries and many of its allies. Yeah. And also American policy, starting with Reagan, uh, exacerbates uh, processes we're still coping with. So uh, the United States was never going to be the preeminent global power forever. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the success of unions and American industry in the aftermath of World War II was a, a function of Germany being annihilated, Japan being annihilated. By the 70s, both of those countries recovered astonishingly well are now competing with American steel, American auto, et cetera, and global, uh, global uh, marketplaces. But at the same time, U.S. government policies are also encouraging things like outsourcing, uh, like moving factories uh, between states and between countries, uh, de-emphasizing industry itself as a, uh, as a way of creating wealth, like Cadejo said, privileging services, privileging finance as uh, places to park your capital, um, you know, so these, these are things that are happening, you know, in, in the context of, uh, of a concerted campaign against unionization and existing unions yeah, as such. It's, I like that, that metaphor places to park your capital because they're double parked right over the handicap spot. Yeah. That's really what it is. Um, and that's one of the things that, especially like the nineties, like there's so many weak, like there haven't been strikes, there hasn't been militancy, certainly in the way that it was in the past. There's one really keen exception, and this is, I love this one, it's also part of a very, very personal grudge, which is the 1997 UPS strike. Um, so conditions were not, and still aren't good if you're in the packing industry. And we did a warehouse episode, and it's worth, you know, maybe maybe going back to that one to talk about how great great it is to work in a warehouse and <laughs> Contemporary America. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I know from experience. Yep. Um, but it's one of the most successful strikes I can think of ever. Um, definitely since probably World War II ended. Yeah. It, the amount of people involved are, is crazy. So in 1997, for I hope what you, you can imagine what the conditions were like that led to a strike by now, if you've been listening to our episodes, um, the Teamsters decided, okay, we're going to hold one over on UPS. So what happens is 185,000 drivers across the country check out. That is nearly 100% of the union checks out on the strike. For 15 days, UPS is barely able to move a package anywhere and loses hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it works. There's nothing like UPS was not prepared in any way to deal with this strike, and it succeeded because... What could they do? We're recording this before Christmas. I mean, just imagine what something like that would have. The impact of UPS being shut down would have on the whole economy, you know, in December, in the holiday season, as packages are being shipped more frequently than ever. Well, that's the other part of it, too. People that you can think about of why it was successful is... It wasn't just UPS that was affected by it, <laughs> especially I think it's even more true now. But if you're a major shipper who uses UPS and UPS shuts down, you're stuck too. So the pressure is going to be, okay, I need you to resolve this quickly because you're losing me money as well. You're putting pressure on them from the customer side as well. UPS succeeds to 
all the demands. The union there is still very, very strong. As, as, a, as a son of a Teamster, I can attest to uh, the importance of the Teamsters to uh, what exists of militancy within the labor movement. Uh, so I want to moderate that. Uh, Teamsters undoubtedly had issues with corruption, with mob infiltration in the past. It still does have, unfortunately, a fairly conservative leadership. Uh, but the Teamsters also host Teamsters for Democratic Union, which is one of the the major uh, democratic, small d democratic forces within the labor movement, advocating for organization, advocating for workers' rule, advocating for workers to understand their power uh, and understand the place they play in the American economy. So for UPS in particular uh, and Teamsters generally, they're the workers who control shipping. They're the ones who control trucking. They're the ones who control uh where commodities go. If the Teamsters go out on strike, the economy shuts down. And it's important to emphasize how much power that gives those unions and then how much power that gives to the labor movement in general. Uh, by being kind of the spearhead of, of labor militancy, these unions can uh, have ripple effects throughout the economy, affect not just the other shippers, but also uh, other workplaces. I, I think... You know, this is a show about work. Why do we focus is, focus so much on unions and organized labor? It's because of that power they yeah. have. Yeah, and this is part of where my grudge comes from. So I will say this now. I used to work for FedEx. FedEx never got unionized. I could be putting myself at a like, risk of them coming and giving me problems for this, but part of the reason that UPS and the Teamsters Union was so effective is it because it kept, it kept the drivers for the trucks for UPS, especially delivery trucks, from becoming uh, contract work. What's the re big problem in FedEx is that all of the none of the if you see a FedEx truck that's not a FedEx employee, they are subcontracted out. Despite the fact that FedEx is on their trucks, they got to wear FedEx uniforms, use the FedEx systems for everything. They are employed by themselves or part of like a small contracting group. Working on the floor, uh, I worked in the the warehouse, the distributing part where we move stuff back and forth. You know. We unload the trailers. We put the stuff in the, the trucks. The bosses actively told us not to talk to any of the drivers, despite the fact that sometimes you just need to because they were afraid we were going to unionize. And there have been so many times where FedEx has spent literally millions of dollars in lawsuits that have gone to the Supreme Court to keep them classified as an airline because <laughs> airlines fall under the railroad rules yeah. for unionization, and it's a lot harder to do that. Literally, FedEx spends millions upon probably billions of dollars at this point to keep unions out. And, you know, I left because I, I knew there was no way I was going to get a union and the conditions were awful. As, if, as if you needed further evidence of how powerful unions can be and how necessary they are. Just look at how much money these corporations spend on keeping unions out. Look at the, the, the secondary industry of union-busting law firms that exists to advise, you know, Walmart and FedEx, et cetera, on how to keep unions out, how to keep unions out of grad schools. Uh, you're seeing that a lot these days as well. Uh, we have we have more power than we know, uh, and it's up to us to recognize uh, how we can best apply that. Yeah. And that, in to try to bring things to a close here, that is the power of history. We can look at all these ways which which unions succeeded, which strike succeeded which parts of this were the reason that we uh, like got rights what unions succeeded what unions did it? what can we do to bring strength back to people and i think when you're looking at any of these struggles so often you know 
the conditions haven't improved that much. The, I mean, you talk about FedEx being subcontracted. That business model is expanding, not just FedEx. It's Uber. It's every you know gig economy app. It's yeah. Amazon. It's I've even seen stories where like some airlines are subcontracting their pilots and subjecting their pilots to those conditions. And I wouldn't want to fly with a pilot like that, but that's just me. Yeah. They they don't want to see us as workers. They want to see us as independent contractors. That's what that's what we are to them. We are autonomous agents uh, who are freely associating with this powerful entity called the corporation, uh, and we need to recognize that our power comes in our our bonds, our solidarity with our fellow workers in the workplaces. That's where we find our or the future we want. That's where we find the transformation we want. This is the problem with neoliberalism as well. Yeah, is it pushes so much of the responsibility, this free association, let the free markets decide. It pushes, instead of trying to deal with things at a structural level, it pushes it to the individual level. It's my fault that global warming is happening because I have a car that only gets, say, 20 miles a gallon. It's not the fact that industries are you know, built around oil, the profit and keeping oil going. The industry wants to exist. It doesn't care about the long term. It cares about the short term. It cares about the yeah. profit. Or it's my fault I'm making the wage I am. If I just worked harder, if I worked smarter, if I, uh, you know, whatever catchphrase they come up to think with it, then certainly I would earn the the higher wage. And as I work harder, I break my hands. Right. As I work smarter, I get expected to do more at the same pace. And, yep. and whose fault is it that you don't have health insurance if you break your hand? You know, it's it's always taught to be an individual problem and. If we're looking for solutions, that narrative has to change. Right. I think I think we've touched on more than anything today is uh, we're confronting systems and we have to confront them together. You can't confront them alone. You can only confront them with your brothers and sisters in the labor movement. Yeah. And I think this is a good point to wrap up part one. And this is going to be towards what our aim is for part two, is to talk about how do we do that? What are the issues that are at the forefront? How do we work to fight these systems? What systems are in place and what changes are coming down the pipe in the present and, you know, in the near and far future that we are going to have to work on? So as we're coming to the end of the program and wrapping up our discussion here, I think we wanted to take a second, uh, Rich, Ryan, and I, to recommend some books uh, that we found really helpful in learning labor history. I This isn't, no one's paying us to do this. This isn't any sort of specific endorsement or anything it's just books that we found helpful or really like um so two books i'd like to recommend uh one is from the folks who brought you the weekend i believe i mentioned this earlier too a short illustrated history of labor in the united states by priscilla marolo and ab chitty with illustrations this is great there's little illustrations between some of the chapters by joe sacco who's a political cartoonist that covers certain things like there's one on mother jones there's one on the sit-down strike uh the publisher is the new press um, I highly recommend this book. It's a really great read, especially because it covers way before we did. It starts its labor history at, okay, so it's the 1500s and the Spaniards have shown up and started enslaving the natives. That's where they start, and that's one of the reasons I highly recommend it. And the other book I have here to recommend really quickly is uh, American Workers, American Unions, uh, focusing on the 20th and early 21st centuries. The fourth edition is the one I use. It was by uh, Robert Zeger, Timothy Minchin, and Gilbert Gall. And one of the reasons I like this one is it covers uh, very well up into, like, this, game, this version came out in 2014. And it was really strange to be reading about, like, 
post 9-11 labor. And it's like, yeah, I know all of this stuff because I'm living it. <laughs> um, so those are my two recommendations. Do you have any? Yeah. If, so if you're interested in uh, the CIO period, uh, the 1920s, 1930s, uh, Liz Cohen's Making a New Deal is a classic in the field of labor history. Uh, she writes about how workers' culture in Chicago, Illinois in the 1920s um, translated into solidarity in the workplace uh, and allowed the CIO uh, to achieve the successes it did. So it really treats it as kind of a bottom-up, grassroots movement, not a top-down organization effort, but a, a, uh, a worker-directed campaign to organize their workplaces. And then on the same token, if you're interested in learning more about the PACO strike, and aren't we all, uh, I think Joseph A. McCartan, another uh, labor historian's collision course, uh, is really the the definitive book on PACO, uh, the origins of the strike, the origins of the anti-union movement on the right, and the the devastating effects that Cadejo alluded to of, of PACO, uh, not just in the, the labor movement, but in the organized left as a whole. Uh, McCartan gets into the, uh, the the nitty-gritty of that. A book that I found really informative when it comes to labor history is uh, Subterranean Fire by Sharon Smith. The title comes from a quote from one of the uh, men who was executed following the Haymarket Affair in the 1880s. And the book serves as a history of that radical edge of working class movements in the U.S., starting with the Haymarket Affair, really, and going through the IWW and uh, Eugene V. Debs' Socialist Party of the 1910s and the communist influence in the CIO and especially in southern labor unions during the 1930s and all the way through. um, It was published in 2006, so the first half of the Bush era, really. Um, One thread that sticks out in my mind about the book is the sort of level of violence and repression faced by these radicals for their um, views and their willingness to resist the system. And, And it also sort of, you learn a lot about the paths that could have been taken, like we talked earlier today about the choices made by labor unions and the mistakes often made by labor unions, especially their leadership that led us to where we are in this present moment today. If um, I think that's where we're going to wrap up for today's show. Um, I'm Ryan. I'm Rich. Solidarity forever. And my name is Cadejo Jones. As always, folks, you can call me Cadejo. Thank you for listening for another week. We'll see you next week for part two. And remember, your bosses aren't listening, but we are. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.